At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We're glad you're here as we turn to the book of Genesis for our newest series, Family, Why Bother? In the pages of Genesis, we'll discover all kinds of hurting relationships that prove families have been dysfunctional from the very beginning. Join us as we uncover the only one who can renew and restore our broken families. We kicked off last week a series that we're calling Family by Bother, and we're looking together uh, as a church of what it looks like to understand family and navigate family. All of us come from family, and we all face challenges with family, and so we want to have a good understanding of that as we seek to navigate that in in life. And so before we kind of jump into what I want to look at from God's Word today, I kind of have a question maybe to get us going a little bit. So how many of you, show of hands, right, how many of you have ever experienced conflict in your family? Anybody? Anybody? Okay. Maybe the better question is, who hasn't experienced conflict? Maybe we'd see that. That show of hands. Okay, another question. How many of you have ever uttered this phrase or a variation of it? I love my family, but they drive me crazy. Anybody? Yeah, right? We can all affirm that with a hearty amen. The question I have is, what is it about family that kind of holds that challenge, that unique place of, I love them, but sometimes they drive me nuts? Like, these are my people, but then there's also this kind of conflict that we experience. I mean, family's amazing when you really think about it for a minute. They have the power to encourage us at times, to speak into the depth of who we are, help us understand our reality. But on the other hand, they also have an incredible power to hurt us in deep ways many other people can't. Why is it oftentimes that the people we're supposed to love the most, we sometimes have our deepest struggles with? And what's at the root of the family challenges and issues that we face, that every one of us find ourselves in? No matter if you come from a great family quote unquote, I don't know if there is quite such a thing, or you come from what you would think is a terrible family, all of us face the challenges of family. And what's underneath all of that? That's the question I want to kind of dig into today. Because I think if we can get underneath some of that, we can begin to see why we often live with this tension between I love, they drive me crazy. I want what's good in my family, but I also recognize the struggle. So today we're going to look at the first family conflict. And I think through that, it's going to reveal not only what's underneath the surface of our family struggles, but also the way we can begin to move towards healing and some of the challenges that we face in our families. So last week we kicked off our series by looking at Genesis chapter 1 and understanding that ultimately to understand family, we have to go back to God's purposes for humanity that God had designed human beings as his image bearers, to be his royal representatives, to rule over creation and to spread his glory and goodness so that all of creation and all human beings would flourish. Today, I want to build on that foundation a little bit and then begin to deal with the issue and tension that we see of family from there by looking at Genesis chapter 2. And what I hope you can kind of begin to see through our time together today is that we were made for family. But sin ultimately separates us. So we're going to jump into Genesis 2 
and we're going to pick it up in verse 15. Now, just to set the context a little bit for you, right, Genesis 1 and 2 give you two different accounts of the way in which God created the world. But they're not conflictual accounts, they're complementary accounts. They're meant to give you two different perspectives to kind of help you understand what God was doing when he made the world, when he made human beings, how he designed and set the whole thing up. You can think of Genesis 1 and 2 like taking the same photograph, but one with a wide lens and one with a narrow lens. So Genesis chapter 1, in a lot of ways, is like taking a picture with a wide lens. You kind of get this overarching scope of the way God set all things up and the way he kind of positioned things, and it's, it's beautiful and poetic and it's awesome. Genesis chapter 2, then, is like looking at the same picture but with a narrow lens, kind of zoomed in. It really focuses on the sixth day and what God did specifically in creating human beings. And so this morning, last week, we started with the wide lens on kind of humanity and family. This morning, morning, we're going to kind of dig in to the narrow lens. So we're going to pick it up halfway through chapter two. So if you got your Bible, you can follow along with me. This is what it says. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So the woman hasn't shown up on the scene yet. She will in a moment. We're going to unpack that in a second, but just to kind of set again the context, God creates the man and he puts him in this garden, this place of flourishing. And he creates the man specifically that in this garden, the words here he uses are, they, he is to work it and protect it or keep it. Meaning he's to do things in the garden to continue its flourishing, to expand it, but also to protect it from that which might ultimately destroy it. In many ways, what we see in Genesis 2 is, again, a reference back to the reality that we're created to be image bearers of God who are meant to steward God's good creation and spread it, to work it and keep it. In fact, these two words, work and keep, are paired elsewhere in the Old Testament, and they're used of how t- uh, priests were to keep the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Same words are seen elsewhere. What we see in Genesis 2 is that human beings, we were created ultimately to rule under God, but also to be priests, to be mediators of God and God's kingdom and ways to creation. That's what God creates and calls Adam to do. So he sets him in this garden. He calls him to work it and keep it. Verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now that's important, right? God says, hey, you've got freedom. Eat of everything. I'm giving you this whole beautiful creation to enjoy, to flourish, to steward, to expand. But this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, that idea of the knowledge of good and evil is not the idea of just knowing good and evil. Like, it's the idea of determining good and evil. It's putting yourself in the position of God. And what God essentially says is that's off limits. You you don't get the right to eat of that tree. You don't get to determine how the world runs. I'm the creator, so don't eat of that tree. But everything else in creation, enjoy. Let it flourish, steward it, work it, keep it, grow it. But God gives a warning. If you do eat of it, you will die. Now, Verse 18 then, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit or corresponding to him. Now, this should prick your ears up if you're reading through Genesis. 
Because in Genesis chapter 1, what we see time and again is when God looks at creation, he affirms it as good. In fact, at the end of each day, it says, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, six times. And then at the very end, it, of, on the seventh day, God looks at all of the creation that he's made, and he said it was very good. What we see continually through the narrative in Genesis is that God's world is good, and it's created good. So when all of a sudden God comes along and says something is not good, you should prick your ears up and say, oh, maybe he's trying to make an important, important point here about what he's about to do. What is it that is not good for man? Well, it's essentially that he's alone. That God did not design man to live life or to engage the work that he has created. Solid. Oh, I just lost the word. Solo. There it is. And so he says, it's not good that man shall be alone. So I'm going to create a helper that corresponds to him. Someone to come along to work side by side in this call that I have to be my image bearers, to work and keep the garden, to do what I have created and called them to do. God emphasizes in this statement a key aspect of humanity, which is none of us are meant to be solo acts. And so God, as we're going to see, creates a corresponding helper. Now, what we need to understand is that when, when God says it's not good that man should be alone, he's not just saying, oh, it's not good that he's lonely, like that he's by himself. What, what he's saying by this statement is that man is incapable of filling or fulfilling the purposes of God without a corresponding helper. This is how one commentator, John Goldingay, a new Old Testament professor, says this. He says, Yahweh God is not referring to man's being lonely, but to his being single-handed. By himself, he cannot fulfill the task of serving the ground and looking after the garden. So, what does God do then to make him a helper? Look at verse 19. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God has formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heaven, every brought, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heaven, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So God brings all the animals before Adam and he names them one by one. And you probably think by like the 100th Adam, animal, Adam's starting to get the point. None of these are capable of being my partner in the work God has called me to do. So what does God do? Verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So God forms a helper out of Adam, not separate from Adam, but out of his humanity. And that's key. Right, Because what we see in this is that although man and woman are distinct, their, result, their, their original design and creation is from the dignity that God gave to human beings in his creation. And I think the author specifically notes that the woman is created from the side of the man. It's been said before, and I think it's an important reminder. She's not created from the front of the man to be ahead of him. She's not created behind the man to be behind him. She's created from his side to be a corresponding helper that work together in a holy, harmonious alliance to accomplish God's purpose of bringing his glory to the ends of the earth. That's the design originally of human beings. And Adam recognizes this. That's why he celebrates. Yeah, she's from me. We're in this together. We're united. Right? We're, we're distinct, 
male and female, but we're meant to be in a blessed union to accomplish God's purposes. Now, verse 24 then becomes key, and it's actually going to become key for us as we kind of unpack out of this the reality of family that I want you to see. Because the author of Genesis steps back on this work that God has done, and he builds out of it an important plan and principle for how this is going to influence how God wants humanity to move forward. Look at verse 24. Therefore, So because of this, because of the way God designed human beings, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, quick question. Who's he talking about in this verse? He's not talking about Adam and Eve. They don't have a mother and father. God just made them. He's talking about those that will come after him. He's establishing God's plan really for family out of God's design of the first two human beings. And the plan is simply this, right? From Adam and Eve, at some point, for children, it goes on, won't get into all the details of that, right? But a man's going to leave his family unit. That's the key, leaving. He's going to then join or be united or connected with his wife. We see later, this is the idea of covenant, of being brought together. And the Bible says, those two are becoming one flesh. That's not just a physical phrase. That's a more holistic phrase, that they essentially form their own new entity that's united together. They're now bound and create their own new family. This originally was God's plan for family, that originally a man would leave his father and mother, join to his wife in covenant. They would form their own family unit They would have children, they would join, right? And this is part of God's plan. It's it's not the only part of God's plan, right? It's not you have to be married to fulfill God's plan. But what he's trying to establish is because of creation, this is part of God's plan for family. And in fact, this verse is so key in the New Testament that every time Jesus or the Apostle Paul references families, they reference back to this verse, It's the foundation for how they understand marriage, how they understand family, how it results and interacts in God's plan. This is God's original design. Now, you might say, that's great, but my family doesn't look like that. And we're going to get into that, right? What we're talking about here is intention. We'll deal with the reality of how we have different dynamics of family now. But what I just want you to see is that this is originally how God designed for it to be. Why did he design it this way? What what is is the the purpose or the joy of this? Both to fulfill his plan, but I think verse 25 is actually key in this as well. Look at it with me. So he gives him this principle, and then he makes this note in the text. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So God's original design is that this couple would be in such a relationship that they would be, now that idea of naked is not just physical. It's this idea of being completely bare, completely known, every aspect of who you are seen in light of the person that you are with. That's really kind of the key idea. And God's original design was that in this unit, they would experience this and there wouldn't be shame. There wouldn't be separation. There wouldn't be hiding. The phrase is that you would originally were designed to be in a family in which you were fully known and fully loved. That was God's original purpose. And then at some point, those that God would call would start new family units that would be fully known and fully loved. So the first key point that I want you to understand in God's design of family is God designed families for harmony. 
And what I mean by the phrase harmony is really the, underneath that and kind of what we see in Genesis is really the Hebrew word shalom. The Hebrew word for shalom is an important word in the Bible. It's kind of God's description of creation and God's intention. It was used as a greeting by the Jewish people. And we often translate the Hebrew word shalom as peace, but it means a lot more than that. Shalom means this idea of wholeness, harmony, of creation working together as it was intentioned. It's peace and goodness and flourishing and life. To have shalom is to have what God ultimately intended for humanity. And that's God's design for families. Families were meant to be a place where there was such harmony, such shalom, that human beings would be fully known and fully loved. Let me, let me help you kind of think about this or feel this for a moment, all right? I want you to think about a moment in your life. Maybe it was with your family, maybe it wasn't, maybe it was a friend. Maybe you might have trouble finding that moment and you just need to imagine it. But think of a moment in your life, it might have been fleeting, it might have been longer, I don't know, where you felt fully known and fully loved. Maybe just for a moment, maybe, maybe it was a glimpse, but, but you felt that for a second and there was part of you that said, oh man, I wish I could stay in that forever. Like, I wish I could experience that. What I think Genesis reminds us of is that's what we were created for within our families. That that was the design, that that would be the norm experience. Now, at this point, you might say, yeah, that's great, but that's not my experience. Well, that's why there's Genesis 3. But the point I want you to see is God's original design for family was it would be a place you'd be fully known and fully loved. Why is it not like that? Well, that's what we need to unpack. So look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Serpents in ancient Near East were symbols of evil, and that's what we're getting pictured here. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So notice what he comes along and says. First, he distorts God's word, then he denies God's word. That's the heart of temptation. Temptation is always seeking to get us to distort God's word and then ultimately deny it. The problem is the woman also misunderstands God's word and says, well, yeah, we shouldn't touch it, but God never said that. But the serpent continues on in verse five. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So it distorts God's word, it denies God's word, and it challenges God's goodness. That's what temptation always does. It comes and it says, did God really say? No, that's not true. God's holding back from you. If you would just follow this way, then you could be like him. It's not just knowing good and evil. You can determine what's good for your life. You get to determine how we get to human flourishing. You get to determine how things will run. That's always the challenge of humanity. Will we submit under God's word and God's ways or will we turn from it and follow our own word and our own ways? Well, we see what they do and I think you're gonna see the results of that. Verse six, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. 
So they do exactly what God said, don't do. Right? This is the heart of sin. When we use the biblical word sin, it carries the idea of trespass or transgression. It means we do what God told us not to do. That's the heart of sin. And with sin, there always comes a penalty. We become guilty. God promised, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Now, they don't physically die in this moment. Death enters the world. They spiritually die, and that has massive effects on how they relate to each other and ultimately how they relate to God. And you see that come right away in verse 7. Look, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So they wanted to know what good and evil was and to determine that. But in breaking God's law, what they actually know is that they're wrong. That they have broken covenant and relationship with God. And they know that they're naked. They suddenly become aware of their own frailty, humanity, and brokenness. And so what do they do? They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So they sin, they break God's law, guilt comes upon them, but guilt results in something. And at the end of the day, this thing is what destroys their relationship with God and one another. The result of sin is shame. And shame enters the world for the first time in this scene. What is shame? My favorite definition of shame from Dan Allender and Tremper Longman rooted out of this passage is they say this, shame is the traumatic exposure of our nakedness. Shame is when we recognize we're broken. And that's being exposed to other people. Guilt is I did wrong. I transgress God's law. Shame is, I am wrong. And everybody can see it. And when shame enters the world, it not only distorts their relationship with God, right? What do they want to do? They want to hide from God, but it also breaks their relationship with one another. This family unit that God had created suddenly experiences conflict and where before there was harmony and knownness, fully loved, fully known, integration, beauty, life. The first reaction out of sin when shame enters the picture because of their sin is I got to cover myself up. I can't be fully known and fully seen by this person. I got to pull back and I'm going to sew some fig leaves together. I'm going to try to do whatever I can because my nakedness is exposed for everyone to see. And that's the reality that we see that shame brings. Sin destroys shalom. Where it was meant to be in that family unit, knownness, it's gone. And because of this, it has all sorts of effects on how they respond. And it's these kind of things that begin to pick and destroy the reality of our family. Allender and Longman in their book, The Cry of the Soul, actually highlight from the text three signposts of shame that we all have in response to the reality of our sinfulness because we are just like Adam and Eve. The first thing that we see in this text that's a signpost of shame is we become absorbed with ourselves. We turn inward. 
And out of sin, shame can actually create in us such a life that we, even people who appear to be interested in others, can actually do that in a way in which they're more interested in themselves and their own self-protection. Right? They, They cover up. They turn, oh no, I've been exposed. And that becomes the dominant way in which they see the rest of the world and their relationships. The second thing that is a signpost of shame that they point to is that it's a flight from that exposure. So you become absorbed with yourself and then you immediately draw, withdraw and pull back from others. I can't fully show you who I am. I can't fully be honest with you and you can't be fully honest with me. And we struggle in this exposure before other people. The third thing that they note is that shame leads to a violence, either emotionally and even at times physically against ourselves and others. When we feel I am wrong, it naturally leads us to see ourselves in a certain way and relate to others in a certain way. And again, we see all of this happen in the text. The first thing they do is they become absorbed with themselves. They try to hide from each other. They try to hide from God. When God shows up on the scene and actually challenges Adam in verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? What's Adam's response? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. I love it. It's like, not my fault, God. It's her fault. And even worse, you're the one who gave it to me. Right? Like that's the nature of the breakdown of relationship. There's a violent spoken act that says, this is your fault and her fault, not my fault. Don't look at me. But what are you trying to do in that moment? What's Adam trying to do? I'm going to cover up my shame. Don't see that I'm wrong. He's wrong. That's why I'm wrong. Now you tell me, you tell me if a culture that includes an absorption with self, a flight from exposure, and potential emotional, physical violence and words and others against self and others, if that sounds like the breeding ground for a healthy family system. No, not at all, right? We would all say, no, that's terrible. But this is at the heart of all of our families, in this first family and every family since. Sin has destroyed our harmony and shalom. And it's here why we feel this tension with family. It's because of the reality of shame and the division it creates. I mean, even the even Studies around our society note the power that shame has and the effect it has on our family units. So if any of you have read Dr. Brene Brown's work, who's done some phenomenal work on the reality of shame and vulnerability, and has studied that from a psychological and clinical perspective, she notes in her work the power that shame has and the destructive power that it often brings in relationships. In fact, in her book, The Gift of Imperfection, she notes, when we experience shame, we feel disconnected and desperate for worthiness. Full of shame or the fear of shame, we are more likely to engage in self-destructive behaviors and to attack or shame others. In fact, shame is related to violence, aggression, depression, addiction, eating orders, and bullying. I mean, Brene Brown is, is brilliant. Hear me say that. She's only affirming what Genesis showed us from the very beginning. Where shame is present, it destroys relationships. It doesn't help them. And I believe that almost every single relational issue that you experience in your family is rooted in the reality of sin and the shame that you experience because of your sin. That's, that's the focal point. 
And that's why the tension exists. Because there's power and God's original design is goodness. And we experience elements of goodness in our family where we say, yes, isn't this what family's supposed to be about? Fully known, fully loved. And we catch little tastes or we catch a vision of what that could be or hope for it to be. We're like, oh man, if only that was the case. And yet there's this whole reality of sin and shame underneath that's ruining and affecting our relationships. It's separating us and destroying us. And too often the problem is we're operating in our family units out of this reality of shame. We try to operate like Adam and Eve and cover up our shame with our own efforts, our own means. We try to wrap ourselves in our figurative loincloths and fig leaves in order to try to navigate the reality that underneath all this is this major problem that we have with sin and shame. And we do this in all sorts of ways. All sorts of ways in which we we follow this same pattern. Even there's certain aspects of our personality that we adopt out of the shameful reality that's underneath the surface of our families. You have gifts and designs from God that are good, that are from him. But you also have parts of your personality that have come out of your family unit in reaction to the sin and shame that is present there. I mean, I'll give you my own example, right? One of the things that I struggle with, so I grew up in a family where there was a lot of conflict early on. My parents are, I love my parents now, but when I was young, they were young and there was a lot of conflict. And, um, and because of that, Right, I adopted a personality that's like make peace at all costs. That, that's my default personality when it comes to things. Now, that helped me survive as a kid, but as I've gotten older, I've realized that's not actually the way God wants us to live. God wants us to be peaceful, but he does not want peace to come at the expense of truth. But in my reality, I will often at times be less than truthful with people about how I feel or what I experience or what I see if I think that will result in conflict. Now, God's redeeming that in me. But do you see the pattern? The shame and sin of my family roots itself in me to adopt a personality that reacts, that then distorts the way I relate to my wife, my kids, my friends, the people around me, which perpetuates more problems and sins. And every single one of us have this reality in us. We have these aspects that come out of this foundation that affect the way we relate. And we then try to cover up, right? My personality at times can be my fig leaves that I'm trying to cover up. Don't don't see that part of me. Don't see the part that's afraid. Don't see the part that doesn't like conflict. So I'll try to do what I can. And you probably have something in your life that you do the same thing. Or we engage our world thinking maybe achievement, work, effort. A good therapist. That'll fix our ultimate problem of shame. I'm not dissing therapy, but what I think we have to recognize is our natural impulse in our world is to think shame is something that is externally projected upon us and we then have to mitigate shame by dealing with it internally. So the reason you feel shame is just because the world tells you that. You're actually a really good person down deep. And if you would just realize that more, if you would have more self-esteem, if you would just be more gracious with yourself, more forgiving with yourself, then you could deal with that shame and you'd be okay, right? That, that's the idea. It's shame is externally projected, internally dealt with. But the problem is every time we fail ourselves, we just repeat the cycle. 
And even worse, we have a whole lot of trouble maybe dealing with our shame, but we really have trouble dealing in relationship with other people's shames. Because we recognize that we're all wrong and there's this brokenness. And we're all in these tensions and struggles in relationships within our families, outside of our families, in our friendships, all of it, right? And it all comes rooted in the same place. Now, the message of this isn't just to make you bummed out, but to help you see that God actually works in opposite to help us experience what his original design was for. If, if our world and culture comes along and says shame is an external reality that needs to be dealt with, what God comes along and says is, no, shame is an internal reality because you have sinned that I deal with externally. And so your hope is not to look within yourself, it's to look outside of yourself. And this is actually exactly what happens in the text. Go back to Genesis 3 for a second. So, Adam blames Eve. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So there's blame. He blames her, she blames the serpent. Nobody's taken ownership here whatsoever. So Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. There's a lot to unpack there, but we don't have time. I want you to see the next verse. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So our shame is rooted out of the reality of our sin, which is connected to the things that are against God. So if we're to experience first a freedom from shame, God knows that he's got to deal with evil and our sin that's connected to it. Now, the beauty of Genesis 3 is God says, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Verse 15 in theological nerdy circles, and I know kids are in the room, so this is even, this is over everyone's head, but I just like this stuff, so you just got to live with it for me, right? Most scholars refer to verse 15 as the proto-evangelion. That's a big, fancy word. It means first gospel. And the reason they refer to that is this is the first time in the Bible where God makes a promise of how he is going to deal with sin and evil. It's the first time. So he's already foreshadowing, I'm going to deal with the problem that's wreaking havoc in your life and your families. And the way that that's going to happen is I'm ultimately going to send someone who's a son of this woman who's going to be bruised by this serpent, bruised by evil. But in that is ultimately going to destroy and conquer evil in such a way that we can be restored back to God's intended design for shalom. That's the promise. And what we see in the scriptures is that's what God exactly does. That one day God sends Jesus, who is fully God and fully human, born of a woman, and that he comes to live the life that Adam and Eve couldn't live. He's sinless, perfect, but then ultimately offers himself as a sacrifice before God for the penalty of our sin. Our sin deserves death. Jesus comes and offers himself to die so that we could receive forgiveness for our sin. And ultimately, the evil one does bruise Jesus' heel as he dies upon the cross and dies the most heinous death of any human being ever, taking the sin of humanity upon himself in excruciating pain, and yet in that moment, he also conquers sin, defeats death, and disarms the enemy. And the promise of Genesis 3.15 ultimately does get fulfilled in Jesus. And it's the way in which we, 
begin to experience a return back in our lives to the shalom and harmony that God has for us and our families. That's why Paul would say in Colossians chapter 2, that you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. There's that word trespass. You've crossed the law. Just like Adam and Eve, you did what God didn't say. And therefore you deserve death. But what does God do? God made you alive together with Jesus. How? He forgave all your trespasses. Jesus paid for them by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. There's your guilt your guilt was dealt with on the cross. Jesus paid for the legal demand that you should die because of your guilt, spiritually die. And in that, you get life, eternal life when you trust in him. He takes your death, you get his life. Seems like a pretty good exchange to me. And God cleans your record clean so that no one can bring an accusation against you. But look what he continues to do. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Allender and Longman in their commentary on this says, God shamed shame. I love that. In removing your guilt, God also removed any power over you to bring accusation in a way. He put it to shame. He took shame and he turned it on its head. And he said, no more. Not just, I am wrong, that's been removed. If you put your faith in Jesus, God has shame, shame in your life. Praise him. But he doesn't only do that. He does something even more. Go back to Genesis 3. See this. This is going to be key then for how we move forward. So verse 20. So God brings curses in relationship to the woman and in relationship to Adam. In verse 20, then he says, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, verse 21 is key. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. So follow the thread of the text. Originally, they're created unashamed. Their sin results in their shame, which they try to deal with themselves, but they can't. God makes a promise, I'm going to deal with your sin and shame, ultimately through Jesus. And then in response at the end says, and guess what? I'm also going to cover you so that you don't continue to feel that shame. And ultimately what we believe is that in this act of sacrifice that God takes this animal, covers them as shame, is a foreshadowing of the reality that Christ not only removes our shame, but actually gives us his righteousness. The Bible looks back on this moment time and again, and it shows that the way in which God covers his people in the act of salvation is not just removing sin, but actually giving them righteousness. So they're viewed in the same way that Jesus is viewed. That's why Isaiah 61 would come along and God would say in verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. That's what God does in salvation. He covers you, just like he covered Adam and Eve. He removes your shame, and then he covers you in his righteousness. So when he looks at you, he looks at, the same, he looks at you the same way he looks at Jesus. He sees you as righteous. If you're in Jesus, he doesn't just see you as neutral. He sees you as righteous, because you have Jesus' righteousness. But notice the next verse. He sees you as righteous, or, uh, with a robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Don't miss the intentional Genesis language that Isaiah is using. 
We're created to be priests who serve God, who bring flourishing. We were created to live adorned in that glory and to reflect it out into creation. We fell in our sinfulness from that place. But God, in his work of salvation, is clothing us in righteousness, restoring us back in priests. And even that language we see of marriage in Genesis 2 is restored back to us. That we fulfill our life and our relationships and can be brought into flourishing. Grace meaning God's external activity, which deals with your internal sin reality, provides the path for you to be restored in your life and in your relationships. You see, when you recognize that your righteousness is not ultimately rooted in yourself, it's rooted in Christ, that gives you a freedom to live life with a certain level of vulnerability before God and others through which God can work to bring healing in the world and in your life. If God looks at you and sees you as righteous, who can look at you and say you're not? Say, no, I got Jesus. I know I'm a mess. But good thing I'm not banking on myself. Jesus has covered me. And once you recognize that external reality, it gives you the freedom to deal with the broken parts of your life and the broken parts of your families and relationships. So I do a lot of work um, and have done a lot of work over the years with people who struggle with sin and addiction. I mean, I'm a pastor. That's what I do, right? People come to my office, they're struggling with something. And oftentimes we'll have conversations where, where I'm navigating. And, and oftentimes, um, you know, I will ask them, point blank, do you believe in Jesus, that he died for your sins, and that he rose again on the third day, that he's the true king? And a lot of times people will affirm that. But usually at some point I'll ask them in the conversation. I'll say, hey, If you struggle with this thing that you're struggling with, whatever it is, if you struggle with this the rest of your life, do you think God will still let you into his kingdom? And I can't tell you the number of people who say, I don't know, maybe. I hope so. And at some point I look at them and I say, then you're trusting in yourself for your salvation. You're not trusting in Jesus. And as long as that's the case, you're not going to be honest about your sin. You're going to keep trying to hide it. You're going to try to put some fig leaves over it. And if you're not honest with your sin, you're not going to be honest the way that sin affects the relationships around you. And if you're not honest with that, God can't start to bring healing. And so the starting point for healing is to go back and remind, there isn't anything in you that makes you righteous. And because of that, there isn't anything in you, if you trust in Jesus, that can remove the righteousness that he has given you when you put your faith in him. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. If you genuinely trusted in Christ, you've been given a righteousness that is not internal to your perfection, it is external to Jesus, and therefore it covers you, and what that then frees you to be is open and vulnerable with your struggle and sin. It allows you to be vulnerable with God, to be exposed, and to say, you're right, God, I am a mess. I know I'm a work in progress. Here's my sin and struggle. And God looks at you and says, it's okay, I forgive you. Let's keep working. Let's keep growing, right? That's not an excuse to keep on sinning, but it's the power in which we can be honest with our sins so we can find healing. It also allows us then to be vulnerable with other people because we don't have to hide ourselves. And Brene Brown, if you ever read her stuff, one of the things she notes is one of the powerful things that overcomes shames in the life of relationships is vulnerability. But you will only be truly vulnerable when you recognize that your righteousness isn't in you. As long as you keep thinking, some part of me has got to be perfect for God to accept me, you'll never be truly honest. You'll reveal a part, 
until you get to that part that you know is ugly and you want no one to know about, and you'll keep that part in. But if you realize that your righteousness is in Christ, it frees you to say, no, even that ugliness, Jesus died for that too. And because of that, God still loves me. You see, when you recognize that in God you are fully loved and fully known, then you can begin to restore your life in which you can help others be fully loved and fully known. That's why Tim Keller in his work, The Meaning of Marriage, says this, when over the years someone has seen you at your worst and knows you with all your strengths and flaws, yet commits himself or herself to you wholly, it is a consummate experience. Who doesn't want a relationship like that, right? To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. That was Adam's fear. You know my sin, you're going to reject me. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. And that's what God does in and through Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, when you put your faith in him, God says, I know the worst parts of you, but I love you enough to cover those with righteousness. And that way you can be fully loved and fully known. And you begin to spread that into your relationships and your family. So friends, my prayer for you this morning and for all of us is that we would come to that place before God where we'd be honest about our sin, where we'd truly be vulnerable with him, where we'd experience the power of Jesus' saving grace over us. And that from that place, we would learn to be fully known and fully loved with God so we can be fully known and fully loved with others. It's that grace that brings us back to Shalom. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.